Hey everyone, how's it going? Good morning. I'm so excited to get into God's Word with you. If we haven't met yet, I am Zach. I would love to meet you if we haven't met yet. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 26. The title of this sermon is called Victims, Villains, and the Hero. I'll give you three guesses as to who the hero is. So as you're turning to Matthew chapter 26, just a quick recap of where we are and setting the stage for where we are in this passage is that we know that Jesus has been betrayed by Judas already, right? That, that Judas has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, right? And, and he is now conspiring to get Jesus arrested. And Jesus, knowing this, went to the Garden of Gethsemane near the Valley Kidron to pray, right? And he knows that his time is near, and so he asks his near and dear disciples to pray with him. He asks them to implore of the Lord with him uh, that they might seek the comfort of God in this time. And uh, we also learn that the, uh, the disciples, they, they fall asleep, right? They fall asleep. And, uh, and, and Jesus, you know, he approaches them and he, he says, can you not stay up with me and pray? Can you not just give yourself? And, you know, he, he kind of gives them, you know, he's like, oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as he's speaking, we enter in here in Matthew 26, verse 47. We're going to go through the first 10 verses, and then we'll continue on later on. But Matthew 26 says this, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Can we guess who that is? Probably Peter. Yeah. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is God's Word. You ready? Lord, we desperately desire for you to be put up on a pedestal this morning. We want you at the center. We want you to be the object of our affection. I pray that you would seize our heart with your word. That you would cause us to understand you deeper. And in understanding you more, that we'd understand more about ourselves as well. And who we are in you. As I usually pray, Lord, if anything is said of me, may it be forgotten. But if it is said of you, may it be etched upon our hearts for all of eternity. We love you and we give you this uh, morning and give you this entire day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, embedded in every human being, there is this deep desire to solve what philosophers have called the problem of evil. 
right? Philosophers, theologians, scholars, even authors have tried desperately to solve this philosophical dilemma of if there's a benevolent creator that exists or if humanity serves some higher spiritual or moral purpose, then what do we do with this looming thing that we call evil, right? What do we do with this kind of, this thing? It's almost like this cloud that's over us as human beings, that there's this, we know in our hearts, it's ingrained almost in our DNA, that we're able to identify evil. Isn't that weird? That all of us collectively, we're able to take something and say, oh, that's evil, right? There's, there's this morality, or, the, or, you know, what the Bible describes as the law that's etched upon our hearts when, when there's a crooked line, we'll be able to say that's crooked, Right? And what's come with that, and with years and years and years of humanity trying to figure this out, we've been trying to kind of figure out these questions. How, how can human beings rise above evil? How can, how can we conquer evil? How, how can we combat against it? And this, this is the question that most major religions try to solve. Besides cults, because cults are kind of like that self-serving thing. But most major religions, I want you to think of them almost as like equations up on a blackboard trying to solve this conundrum of evil, right? Trying to solve this problem. Why does evil exist? But not only why does it exist, but how can we rise above it? How can we eradicate it? How can we combat evil in this world? And this even is reflected in, in the stories that we tell, right? In the stories that we tell, in the books that we write, in the movies that we make, we as people attempt to explain and solve the problem of evil in our own way. Every narrative has a similar plot. Have you guys noticed this? The princess is kidnapped, right, by a fire-breathing dragon, and the what comes to save her? The knight, the prince, whatever it might be, right? This this overarching plot, right, that there's a victim— right? There's a villain, and then there's a hero. Aragorn, Frodo, and Gandalf bravely relinquish their comforts to save Middle-earth from Sauron's armies, right? The Avengers overcome physical, political, and mental barriers to save the world like every year and a half, right? (laughs) It's embedded in the stories that we write, Every single story has this, right? That there's this, there's this heroic character that, that is almost represents the best of us, right? That overcomes evil when we cannot ourselves. It was actually C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who, if you didn't know, are actually really, were really good friends. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who famously mentioned together that stories are fractured reflections of the gospel. That the narratives we tell are fractured reflections of the gospel, and that in the heart of every human being, we see ourselves as victims, victims, as evil as the villain, and are in desperate need for the hero, Jesus. It is ingrained in who we are. God has created us to think this way. If you even, you even want to take it a step further, even in everyday interactions, we are thinking in narratives. It's called the narrative paradigm. We are thinking in narratives. When somebody cuts you off in the freeway, if someone cuts you off, you are the victim and they are the villain, right? It doesn't matter who they are, right? It doesn't matter who they are. But even when you're in a relational argument with a loved one, 
And when you're arguing and when you're contending, we tend to think of ourselves, I'm the hero. They're the villain. And there's this, there's this combative nature that is about us sometimes. Every movie, every piece of literature, and every story we tell has the hero of this, at the center of the story. You guys notice that? Right? The bat characters are not the center of the story, right? The Batman movies and comic books, they're not about Alfred, right? <laughs> Batman is the center of the story, right? He is the center. He is the focus, And out of every religious worldview, out of every story that we tell, out of every interaction that we have, there is no greater solution to the problem of evil than the cross. There is no greater solution to the problem of evil than the cross. And this story that we have when Jesus is being taken is the beginning of the climax of this story where Jesus is going to take evil on head on. He's going to take evil on, and he's going to vanquish it. Evil is about to be conquered by the hero of the story. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came. And it says that he, he, kissed, he gave him a kiss on the cheek, which was the indicator, right, that these guards can come and now start to seize him. And Jesus said something that is so profound here. He looked Judas in the eye, and he said, friend, Do what you came to do. And here's something that I believe to be extremely crucial to the story, and it is that Jesus is not surprised to see Judas at all. Have you noticed that? Jesus is not caught off guard by all of the armed men around him, ready to seize him like a violent criminal. In fact, in John 18, we get a glimpse in these two sentences. In John 18, we get a greater view of what's actually going on in this story. It says this, listen, uh, read carefully. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where, he was, uh, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Isn't that crazy? The guards, they come. Jesus goes to them, by the way. He's walking to them. He's not hiding from them. He's not shying away from it. He walks towards them. He asks them, hey, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And all of them fall flat on their backs. That's probably why they brought all the torches and stuff and the, and the clubs and the swords. And there are two things that I want us to notice here. One is that it says that Jesus was at the brook Kidron, near the valley of Kidron. And this was a very special brook because sometimes when there was enough water flowing during the Passover, the blood from the Passover sacrifices would actually flow through that brook and the entire, all, all of the water would be turned red from the blood. And this was the brook that Jesus would cross to go towards evil. 
Jesus is literally standing beside a river flowing with blood, spilled from sacrifice hours before he makes the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. That's pretty cool. But there's something, there's two other things that are really special about this brook. Is that this is the same brook that David, remember David? That David, when he was running from his enemies, he actually ran past this brook. So when David was running away from evil, was running away from his pursuers, Jesus, thousands of years later, is pursuing evil. So when Jesus is running away from evil, Jesus is running towards it. When David is running away, Jesus is running towards. And that is absolutely profound. Another interesting part about the Valley of Kidron is that this is where Jesus will ultimately be riding on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, ready to vanquish evil once and for all. So right now, he is coming as the sacrificial lamb, but he will come again as the conquering lion. This is where the final victorious battle over evil will be finally won once and for all. And one thing I think is profound here is that Jesus went forward to them. Jesus went forward to his pursuers. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That Jesus was able to go forward because he knew the joy of being with you and I. And experiencing that intimacy was worth it. For the joy set before him of vanquishing evil, he endured the cross. You see, he was not dragged there against his will. Make no mistake, he was not seized by anyone. He willingly laid his life down. In fact, when he says, I am he, every soldier just falls flat on their backs. Could we stand in a moment? Could we stand in that moment that Jesus is sovereign over this entire situation? Could we sit in that for a second in awe of Jesus? How he has such total sovereignty that he can stand in the face of all of these armed guards and run towards them? That he can see the sacrifice he's going to make on the cross. But understand, everything that's going to be happening, that the problem of evil is going to be dealt with and solved in our lives and around our lives, he went and pursued it. That is so important. And it is profoundly important for us to know that Jesus is not a victim of evil, but a victor over it. God provides a solution for the problem of evil on the cross through Jesus. He takes the eternal sting that evil causes humanity and he nails it to Christ's hands and feet on the cross. He endured and conquered it. And evil was but a tool for redemption in Christ's hands because Christ is completely and 100% sovereign in this entire thing. And if Christ sovereignly and knowingly pursues evil and vanquishes it, that says a lot about us who share in that victory and that identity with him, does it not? Jesus was not a victim to sin and its evils. He is the hero that prevails over it. Jesus is the hero of the story. Our hearts that are creating all of these narratives, they're all meant to point us towards this beautiful protagonist that is Jesus. 
And he can because he is God and he alone holds the power and authority to address evil and do away with it. But sometimes, but sometimes, I fail to put Jesus in that protagonist role in my story. I don't know if you can relate to that. But when I am faced with fears, when I am faced with anxieties, when I am faced with the evil that not only surrounds me, but let's be honest, is within me, right? We have evil that surrounds us for sure and circumstances that may put this pressure on us and and almost cause us to crumble. But we also have this internal evil that we're grappling with. And sometimes when I am faced with this, I forget that Jesus is the hero and I see myself as the hero. I see myself as the hero, and I need to combat evil, and I need to deal with this. And in my experience, we react to evil when we're not putting Jesus as in the hero role. We, we react to evil, and our typical response is in one of two postures, or maybe even both. The first one is hedonism. Ignoring good and evil to pursue your personal pleasures and bliss. That's one response to evil, Right? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of us, when we're faced with anxieties and evils and all of these bad things that are happening, a lot of us, we have this temptation to just kind of retreat from it, not take it on, ignore what's good, but also ignore what's bad and just, well, I just got to do what makes me happy, right? Because some of us are fooled into thinking that happiness is the opposite of evil. It's not true. And so a lot of us, in response to evil, will just pursue our own personal pleasures, our own personal bliss, and it's like, if I could just numb the pain of evil, it'll be okay. And we do this in a myriad of different ways. But for Judas, it was money. Judas is a perfect example of the hedonistic approach to the problem of evil. That in the midst of maybe some uncertainty in his life or insecurities, whatever he might have been struggling with, he decided he was going to pursue his own personal bliss. Just do what makes you happy is so many people's mantras and their solution to the problem of evil. And we don't realize that that might help us numb the pain of whatever outside evil is coming in, but it will never solve what's happening in here. The other approach that we typically have to the problem of evil when we are not putting Jesus up on a pedestal as the hero and the protagonist of our stories is moralism. It's taking it upon yourself to eradicate all evil and be the hero of the story. A lot of us respond to moralism. There was one person who responded in moralism for sure, and it was this man right here. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know this to be Peter, right? Peter responded in a moralistic fashion saying, evil is before me. It is my job to finish it. And he took it upon himself, and he was aiming for this man's head, right? Because no one aims for an ear. He's a fisherman, you know? Like, he, he's probably aiming for the head, missed, cut off his ear. Peter, in a moment of indignation, aims to kill this man. He ends up cutting off his ear. And his attempts to eradicate evil, all he does is make, up, make a mess for Jesus to clean up. 
And that is so telling what happens in my heart all the time. Is that in my messy and sloppy attempts to eradicate evil in my life or in other people's lives, I just cut off ears. And I wonder how many ears, because because it says that after this, in another account, it says that Jesus picked up the ear and put it back on the shoulders on the soldier's head, and he healed him. And I wonder how many ears Jesus has had to put back on my behalf. And this is something that like keeps me up sometimes. I wonder how many people have been cut off from hearing the truth of the gospel because of my self-righteousness and my arrogance and my moralism. I cringe, like, thinking about this sometimes in moments of jealousy or anger or self-righteousness and pride. I, I, I have cut people thinking that I was combating the evil, but really I'm just hurting them. And Jesus later on has to come, come behind me and he has to heal them. And so we have to be so careful when we are trying to combat evil on our own. And when we see ourselves as the heroes here, we can cut people with our words. We can cut people with our actions. We can cut people off from hearing the truth of Jesus. We see this in society, don't we? People think that they're combating evil, but they're just combating people. They're people. And that's one thing I love about Jesus is that he humanizes this man by putting his ear back on. Because Jesus knew that people are not the enemy here. And all of us at some point have probably been a victim of this behavior. Or someone else's self-righteousness, someone else's religiosity, someone else's moralism and pride has affected you. They've said something to you. They've done whatever it might be. And Jesus has had to put you back together too. And when Peter, David Guzik said this, and I, I love this quote. He said, when Peter moved in the power of the world, he only cut off ears. But when he was filled with the Spirit using the Word of God, Peter pierced hearts for God's glory. I think I can relate to Peter because he was 100% convinced that he was the hero in this story. He was the hero in the scenario. And that is where evil consumes me the most. That is where evil has a potential to sneak in. Evil has the potential to sneak in here when we believe that we are the heroes of the story and not Jesus. When the hero of the story is me and not Jesus, and when people are the enemy and not Satan and evil, that is where it can get dangerous. When we see other people with opposing worldviews or opposing opinions, when we see them as the enemy, when we see them as the source of evil, And this has the potential to ruin marriages, has the potential to ruin relationships, divide churches, when we treat ourselves as the heroes and others as the villains. But Ephesians 6.12 says this, your enemy isn't flesh and blood at all. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus is met in the garden. He pursues his enemies. He pursues evil. He's pursuing the cross. And he allows them to escort him to trial. 
And that's where we pick up again in verse 57, where it says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And this is really important, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do you have? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And so Jesus, he goes willingly to be prosecuted. He goes willingly to be prosecuted because it is a part of his plan. It is a part of Christ's agenda to be put on trial here, to be put on blast here for claiming to be God. And Jesus is blameless, right? We know this. Jesus is blameless. And they have to lie in order to even get him there in the first place. And they falsely accuse him. They spit in his face, yelling blasphemies against him. All the while, he remains silent. And that's something that I actually, I'm I'm really curious about. And that's something that that, that makes me wonder, that the fact that Jesus remains silent. Because we know that most of Jesus' ministry was using words to kind of tell off the Pharisees and religious leaders, right? So for three years, Jesus has been questioned by the religious leaders, and Jesus gives really clever and sometimes sarcastic remarks to shut him up, right? And that's what Jesus has been doing this whole time. He's been combating them using the Word of God, using His words. But now that He's sitting here at this judgment seat before these people, He remains silent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say a word. And here's the thing. Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense here, couldn't he? Calling forth the various witnesses to his deity, to his power, to his character. He could have brought forth the people that he taught. He could have brought forth the people that he healed. They would have gladly come before. He could have brought the people that he rose from the dead, maybe. He could have brought all of these people and mounted a wonderful defense. Even the demons testified to his deity. He could have brought those in too. But he didn't. He remained silent. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think a lot of people could read this story and interpret Jesus' silence as weakness. They could interpret the way that, you know, almost like this pacifist sort of mentality of, you know, like, hey, you know, he's just, you know, he's too weak maybe to do anything. 
that he was remaining silent because he had nothing to say, or he couldn't say anything, or he was afraid, or he didn't want to say anything that would maybe, um, you know, kind of accuse him more. Jesus was in pursuit of the cross, and he would not shy away from it. Remember, he is the hero of the story. So Jesus remained silent. He could have mounted a defense, but he was so adamant on pursuing the cross that he would remain silent. And that is the spirit of meekness right there. Because the spirit of meekness is not to be weak and passive and mild, but meekness is to have this power available to you to completely obliterate whoever is around you, yet keep that power within and sheathed in the pursuit of peace. And Jesus here displays meekness. You guys remember um, Chronicles of Narnia, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the book and the movie that was made. And, and, and there's just this moment where Aslan the Lion comes into the scene. I remember watching the premiere of that with Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara a long time ago, and I just remember when, when this lion came in, it was complete silence followed by applause. Because there, there's this magnificent creature that is king-like and wonderful and, and awe-inspiring. And it says that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the conquering lion. And I want you to imagine for a second, because just really quick, if a lion is in the room, you're not in control, right? I don't care, I don't care who you are, right? I don't care if you're a CEO, you're the President of the United States. doesn't matter how powerful of a person you are. If a lion is in the room, you are not the most powerful thing in that room, right? And so I just, I, I imagine here as these people are spitting in Jesus' face, as they're striking him, I want you to imagine it's almost as if they were doing so to a lion sitting right before them. Terrifying. Terrifying. And for Jesus to not say anything with the power that is the power that he has. He even told Peter, do you think I cannot call upon legions of angels to come and help me? And so Jesus remained silent because he alone has the ability to, to see over the battle. He can see evil in its entirety and he knows that the people here spitting in his face, they are not the enemy. And he is sitting there in accusation of them so that they don't have to sit at the judgment seat. Isn't that, that's a crazy thing to me, that Jesus would endure this harsh judgment and treatment so that these people might be able to have a peace with God later on and not receive an even harsher judgment. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, and his first battle here, right now, is as the sacrificial lamb, but make no mistake, he will come back as the conquering lion. Amen. And he even says that, and then, you know, Jesus kind of throws in this here really quick. He said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Like how Jesus kind of just inserts that, you know, he says nothing, then he kind of just slides that in there. <laughs> just to remind us of who he is. And the irony of this whole trial is that these people are the ones that deserve death. And Jesus endures all of these accusations because he has a deep desire to see every person, including his accusers, know peace with God. Jesus endured the pain and the suffering of death on the cross and rose again so that we might have life, 
above the consequences of the problem of evil. And that's what separates our God from any other philosophy or theology or any sort of religious deity that we could ever find in the world. That's what separates our God from everybody else is that he will endure evil and not just call you to rise above it. That he'll go before you and conquer evil and allow you to just walk in his victory. So many religious stories are told of a deity that is far above evil and of the world and forces its followers to rise up to it, but not Jesus. Jesus came down. Every other religious deity will will be up here on this pedestal and say, come, reach moral clarity. Come and reach enlightenment by being good. Come Come and balance the scales of good and evil, and maybe you will find favor in my eyes, not Yahweh. He will say, I I will rescue them from evil. Though they brought it upon themselves, I will not force them to bear the judgment on their own. I will bear that weight. And let this be an encouragement to those of you who find yourself suffering this morning. Let this be an encouragement for those of you who have found yourself crumbling under the weight of evil happening in and around your life. For those of you struggling with deep anxieties and insecurities for those of you that have had depression overcome you, for those of you that have experienced the most evil abuse that someone can imagine, for those of you that have dealt with a past and a present that seems suppressive under the problem of evil, let this be an encouragement to you that your God has endured it for you and is enduring it with you. Let this be an encouragement. Will trials, tribulation, and sin persist in and around our lives? Of course. But Jesus is victorious over evil. He's not a victim to it. He has not succumbed to it. He was not killed by it. He laid his life down on it. And by raising again, he proved that death has no power, has no sting, and evil will not, will not overcome the children of God. Many look at evil and conclude that life must be meaningless if it persists, Right? This is why we see all of these school shootings happening. This is why we see all of these heinous crimes, people that are so bitter at life that they believe that it ought to just be eradicated. But Jesus offers this profoundly hopeful way out of that. A way to experience life above evil, amidst evil, yet not overcome by it. Amidst evil, yet not overcome by it. You guys remember the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For those of you that don't remember it, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were asked to bow down um, with all of the other servants of the king and all the other citizens to bow down to this idol when the music was playing. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decided that the worship and the admiration of their God would take precedence over their personal safety or in the face of this evil king, right? And so they refused to bow down to it. And as a result, the king threw them into this fiery furnace. And when he threw them in, it it, it appeared as though they weren't even remotely harmed. Their clothes weren't even burning off of their bodies. And it seemed as though this fire that was consuming them was not affecting them at all. And the king, he said, you got to turn up the heat then. 
not enough fire, and so he turned up the heat, and the, the, the fire, it, it, it got louder, and it got hotter. It got more powerful, and it consumed them even more. But it says that there was this glimpse of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were amidst the fire. They were in the fiery furnace, and there was almost, he said that, the king said that there was something resembling the Son of Man that was beside them. There was this fourth figure that was besides them, causing them to be unscathed. In the fire, yet not consumed by it. This is the solution to the problem of evil and the victory that Jesus has over it, is that we are able to be surrounded by evil, maybe consumed by evil, but not destroyed by evil because Jesus is with us in the fire and Jesus has victory over it. He has proven it time and time again that he has authority over it. And this is why Jesus calls us the light of the world in a city set upon a hill. So that we are able to display, not that we in and of ourselves have overcome evil, but that we have, that, that we have found shelter in the King who has. And we are able to shine for those that sit in the problem of evil, in the darkness, seeing no solution. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the solution. With every moment of darkness, Jesus is able to enter into it and bring joy and hope and victory. And that's what triumph over evil looks like. To be face to face with that which has oppressed you. To be face to face of that which gives you anxiety. To be face to face with these evils that you have felt like you have to uh, be succumbed to. Yet be so secure in the identity of Christ and his victory over it that you're able to just follow him as he fights our battles. So here's some final thoughts for us. I have have three final thoughts that I would love for us to meditate on. Is that one, Jesus is victorious over sin and has removed the eternal sting of death as our ultimate hero. Guys, the Jesus, he's done it. And he didn't shy away from it. It wasn't reluctant. It wasn't a reluctant thing like, oh man, they messed up so much. I guess I have to go to the cross now. It was with a loving and a, almost like a, a shepherd that would combat any wolf to save his sheep. He did that for you. And so he, as the hero of the story, has, has sought to redeem us and to deliver us so that we don't have to be the hero. And that's the second point here, is that you do not have to be the hero of your own story. Or anyone else's for that matter. And I know a lot of you in here have probably lived a life of feeling like you need to be the hero. Maybe you have grown up in a household or you have a family situation or whatever situation where you feel like everyone else around you is almost like this victim to poor circumstance, and you have to be the hero to advocate for them. You have to be the hero to, you know, help get them out of it. You have to be the hero to protect them. And you have had the weight of godhood on your shoulders, and it's killing you. So many of you have felt like you have to be the hero of your own story, but also the hero of other people's story. I want that pressure just... 
let it fall off of your shoulders that Jesus is the one who overcomes evil. And as we surround ourselves in his identity, that is how it's dealt with. Amen. You don't have to be the hero anymore. And number three, resistance to evil is found immersed in the identity of Christ. This has powerful application for our daily lives that we do not have to take up arms on our own, that we do not have to take up our swords and our shields and combat evil as the brave hero because Jesus or he has victory in it. And as we immerse ourselves in the identity of Christ, we don't need all of this armor that we've, been, that, that we've been putting up. We don't need these walls that we've been putting up to protect ourselves. Jesus has the victory, amen? We've been talking about the walls of Jericho. Talking about the walls of Jericho and how there's these, it, it's almost like this impenetrable force. Make no mistake, it was not the singing and the trumpets and the yelling that made the walls come down. It was God. It was God that made the walls come down. God is the one who is tearing them down. We just have to sit here and it's almost, it's not even like a cry of like, come down walls. It's saying, my God's going to bring down those walls, right? And that's amazing. The pressure of tearing these things down is not on our shoulders. But as we surround ourselves and as we immerse ourselves with intimacy with Jesus, we are able to share in his victory. You don't have to overcome evil on your own. There is no hero but Jesus. And there's no villain but evil. So we don't have to treat others like they have the responsibility of being the heroes in our lives. We also don't have to treat others like they're the villains and making us the victims. Jesus has total and complete victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that there is no victory without the cross. You doing away with evil once and for all. You raising Jesus from the dead. All of these things we wish to be a part of our identity. We want to identify with your victory, Lord. I pray for anyone in here who has felt like they have been victimized by evil, that they have um, felt themselves kind of being crushed under the weight of sin and depravity and circumstance. I pray that this morning would be just a wonderful reminder that it is not by their own strength that they overcome these things that it is by what you have done for us and what are doing currently for us through your spirit, that is how we experience victory. May we relinquish that power back into your hands because we can't handle it. We've seen what we, we can do with swords. We're just like Peter. The power is yours, Lord. Surround us with it. Redeem us by it. Allow us to live by it. In your precious and holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.